0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading, the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. If I were to ask you, what one thing do you need
1: to thrive as a Christian? What would you say? The passage you just heard read answers that question. According to the Apostle Paul, the one thing that you most need is to know, to really know the love of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Bob. I'm one of the new pastors here at Quorum Deo. Um, It's good to see you. We're preaching our way through the book of Ephesians, and uh, glad you're here this morning. You know, the longing to be loved is one of the core longings of the human soul. Every one of us desires to be loved. And we live in a world that grabs a hold of that longing and that desire and tries to market things to us to fill it. The British writer Mary Harrington, in her interesting new book, Feminism Against Progress, coins the term big romance to describe the industry that tries to market us love. She speaks of all the apps and all the websites that have proliferated in recent years that promise that if you'll just build a profile and let us market you to other people who are looking for similar relationships, then we can make a connection, and along the way, we can make some dollars. Big romance is especially powerful when we are young, and the writer Ronald Rollheiser explains why. He writes, in our adolescent years, we believe that someday we will find a great love who will take our loneliness away. That yearning drives us outward. But the young Jack who falls in love with the young Jennifer is not in love with her, though he thinks and feels that he is. He is in love with love itself. And with the archetype of femininity that Jennifer is carrying. In effect, in loving her, he is loving all women, is loving femininity itself, and is loving half of the Godhead. For this reason, at this time in his life, Jennifer is enough for him. But in the end, Jennifer is just a singular individual woman. She cannot carry all that Jack is seeing in her. She alone cannot take another person's loneliness away. Eventually, reality will break through, and Jack will realize that he married one singular, limited human being. At this point, love becomes a decision, and that is the real beginning of maturity or at least it can be. I would argue to go a step further that maturity begins when we get honest about or start to become honest about the limits of our capacity to give love and to receive love. A few years back, singer-songwriter David Wilcox wrote a song that captures those limits. Let me read to you some of the lyrics. I try so hard to please you, to be the love that fills you up. I try to pour on sweet affection, but I think you've got a broken cup because you can't believe I love you. I try to tell you that there is no doubt, but as soon as I fill you with all I've got, that little break will let it run right out. I cannot make you happy. I'm learning love and money never do but I can pour myself out till I'm empty trying to be just who you'd want me to. I cannot make you happy even though our love is true for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside of you. Later in the song, Wilcox turns the focus to his own brokenness and he sings, you cannot make me happy. That's a money back guarantee but you can pour yourself out till you're empty trying to be just who I'd want you to be. You cannot make me happy. It's just the law of gravity and that break in the cup that holds love inside of me. The song concludes this way. We cannot trade empty for empty. We must go to the waterfall for there's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. What a profound statement of the human condition. We all want to be loved, and yet there's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. And that affects our ability to receive love from other people, and it affects our ability to receive God's love. And that's why this prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 is in the Bible. The thing we most need is to know the love of God. That's what Paul wants for the Christians in Ephesus. It's what I want for you. It's what the Holy Spirit of God wants for all of God's people. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Here's my goal. I want you to walk out those doors this morning more convinced than when you came in of the love of God for you. So here's what we're going to try to do. Three-point sermon. I want to talk about the immensity of God's love, the challenge of God's love, and the grace of God's love. Let's consider first the immensity of God's love. I want to start right in the heart of this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go there. We're going to start right in the middle of the prayer, in the middle of verse 17. Jump right into the center of this prayer. Says after the little hyphen there in verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, when we want to think about the size of something, we think in terms of dimensions. How many square feet is that house? How many acres is that property? How many carats is that diamond? When we're describing an angry person, we might say they have a short fuse. We're trying to avoid someone. We speak of giving them a wide berth. (laughs) If we hear a story that doesn't strike us as entirely true, we might call it a tall tale. Our minds think spatially. And often when the Bible speaks to us about the love of God, it uses dimensional language. For instance, Psalm 36, verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Or you might think of Psalm 103, which we heard earlier in the service. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The Bible regularly uses the language of height and width and depth to describe God's love. And so Paul is working within a well-established biblical tradition here. But the problem, of course, is that for us, breadth and length and height and depth are finite measurements. And so just when the text has our minds thinking spatially, it goes on to say, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that's the paradox of this prayer. Paul is praying that the Christians he's writing to, including you and me, might know something that is actually unknowable. A few years ago, around this time of year, I took my family on vacation to Florida. By the way, I don't know what's going on out there. I think it's gonna be like 62 degrees today. But let's keep in mind it is still February in Nebraska, right? What that means is who knows what it's gonna be like tomorrow, but also it means that by this time in the year, I am usually cold and a little bit cranky and I wanna go someplace where the sun shines. And so sometimes as God provides resources and margin, I leave town about this time of year and try to go somewhere for a few days where it is pleasant. And so a few years ago, that place happened to be Florida, and so I took my family there, and we went to the beach, and we swam in the Atlantic Ocean. And so my kids can now say, as a result of that family vacation, that they know the Atlantic Ocean. They've experienced it. They've even been immersed in it. But do they know the Atlantic Ocean the way a sailor knows it? Do they know it the way an oceanographer knows it? Well, obviously not. And that's the idea here in this passage. Can you know the love of God? Yes, absolutely. Will you ever know the fullness of the love of God? No. There's always more of God's love for you to know. And that's why this prayer (laughs) applies to you no matter how much of God's love you've already experienced and no matter whether you've not experienced any of God's love yet, there's always more of God's love for you to know. And here's why. Because love isn't merely something God has. Love is something God is. Here's how Scott Swain describes describes it in his really excellent book on the Trinity. He writes, God does not have attributes the way we have attributes. We possess specific qualities such as wisdom or brown hair that are metaphysically different from ourselves. We can grow or decrease in wisdom. The color of our hair can change, or our hair can fall out altogether, yet we still remain who we are. Not so with God. God is identical with the perfections we attribute to Him, God is light. 1 John 1, 5. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God is the truth and the life, John 14, 6. Who God is and what God is are identical. God does not have parts. This is called the doctrine of divine Simplicity. And what it's reminding us of, and what matters especially in the passage we're reading today, is that God doesn't just have love. God is love. Love is essential to his being. And so, of course, of course, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ fully, we would have to be able to comprehend the infinite. Our minds would have to be able to comprehend the eternal, uncreated God. Friends, at the heart of ultimate reality, there is a being who is eternal and infinite and beyond our comprehension. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And yet that eternal unchanging, glorious being loves us and has made his love known in a way that we can know and grasp and comprehend. So what does the Apostle Paul want for the Christians he's writing to in Ephesus and for you and me? Well, he wants us to know, to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There is no love like this love. There is no love that's as deep and as vast and as overwhelming and as boundless as the love that God has. And Paul wants us to know that love. So let's think secondly about the challenge of God's love. I wanna go back to verse 14. And I want you to notice the strength language that you're going to see in this passage. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So notice that what he's praying is not just that we would know God's love, but that we would have strength to know God's love. The challenge of God's love is that it requires strength to comprehend. I mean, if you've read the Bible at all, the idea that God is love is not new information. It's not like you've never heard this before. The challenge is that we lack strength to really grab hold of God's love for us, to really be grounded in it. It's not that you don't know this, it's that it doesn't grab you and you can't grab it in the ways that you really most deeply need to. In fact, notice the phrase in verse 16, in your inner being. Isn't that the challenge? The challenge is the love of God needs to get down into you. Many of us know that God is love, but the knowledge of God's love is hanging out on the surface of our lives. It hasn't gotten down into us. It's not like down there in our inner being changing us. It's very common to know intellectually that God loves you and yet to struggle to be rooted in and grounded in and defined by and shaped by that love. I mean, can you feel that struggle in your own life? Can you feel that gap between knowing that God loves you and really knowing that God loves you? Can you feel that unbelief in your inner being that disconnect between what the page says is true and what you sense to be true. That's the struggle. That's the challenge of God's love. Let's talk briefly about three forms of unbelief, three ways we struggle to believe and rest in and be grounded in the love of God. Here's the first form of unbelief the belief that God loves a future version of me. Aren't you prone to this? Hey, there's a version of me coming, it's gonna be amazing. It'll be easy for God to love that version of me because after all, I'll be way more mature than I am now, way less foolish than I am now, way more grounded as a Christian than I am now. And man, when that version gets here, God's gonna love that upgrade. (laughs) So we're just holding out for that version of me and I'm working hard to get that version of me in process. And when that version of me comes, God will really love that version of me. And in believing that, what we're essentially saying is, and he doesn't love the version of me that's here now, right? We're all prone to think this way because, of course, we don't all love the version of us that is here now, and so we always know there's a better version of me coming. God loves a future version of me. That's just the shape that our unbelief takes. It's easier for us to think that God will love some future version of us than to believe that God loves me as I am right now. Here's a second form of unbelief. God loves a past version of me. God did love me once. There was a version of me that was lovable. But then I did something to compromise God's love for me maybe I sinned greatly, maybe I strayed from God, maybe I turned away from him for a season of time, and so the version of me that exists now is a less lovable, less deserving version of God's love. There was a version of me once that God loved, but that version is in the past. God loves a future version of me. Sometimes we're prone to think that. God loves a past version of me. Sometimes we're prone to think that way. Here's the third form of unbelief. God loves a curated version of me. There are parts of me after all that God couldn't possibly love. So I just sort of keep those parts out of sight. And showing up at church is kind of like showing up to a job interview, you know? You gotta put your best foot forward, make a good impression, curate your image. Nobody wants to know the fullness of who you are, we just wanna know what's your resume. What have you done that's relevant to what we're doing here? And that's kinda how I relate to God. God loves a, a curated version of me, the best version of me with all my best attributes and characteristics, that's the version God loves. you know what all three of these forms of unbelief have in common? the common denominator in all of them is that they're all subtle forms of works righteousness, of self-salvation. What they're all saying is, once I get my life together, God will love me. Or to say it differently, there's just a few things I need to do to work my way into the love of God. This unbelief that we have in the love of God is rooted in our inability to grasp the good news of the gospel. It's rooted in our deep tendency to want to make ourselves desirable and respectable and credible. That's what self-righteousness is. That's what works righteousness does. It's up to me to show myself lovable proved, valuable. So how then can we triumph over our unbelief? How can we be done with these subtle forms of self-righteousness and actually be rooted and grounded in the love of God? Well, we need to see thirdly, the grace of God's love. And this is really the beauty and the heart of this prayer. There's a couple things I want you to see here couple things I want you to see to capture to see with new eyes the grace of God's love. First of all, I want you to let it sink in that this is a prayer. There's nothing for you to do here. There's no command. This is a prayer. Paul says, "I'm bowing my knee before the Father," And I'm asking that Father, Son, and Spirit would draw near to you and fill you up with the love of Christ. In the midst of your unbelief, the grace of God's love is that God himself is going to draw near and fill you with strength in your inner being to really know the love of God. What should you do when you struggle to believe God's love for you? Or when people around you struggle to believe God's love for them. Well, you should pray this prayer. Just say, God, I'm incapable of really hanging on to the depth of your love for me. So would you, Father, Son, and Spirit, come near and help me see again? Help me grab hold of again the depth of your love. This is a prayer. This is God saying, That's what I do. I come near and I help to affirm my love for you. Second, I want you to notice right at the heart of this prayer, the nuclear little phrase, the love of Christ. You see that? To know the love of Christ. Here's why that's important. Because the love of God is not some abstract idea. It's a love that comes to us concretely and tangibly In Jesus Christ. Do you know how you know that God loves you? You know because he sent his son. This is what the scriptures proclaim. Romans 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us. How? In this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans is saying, hey, how do you know God loves, how does God show his love? Well, like this, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, that's how. First John four, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved you and sent his son while you were still a sinner. Okay, to say it another way, God loved you before the future version of you or the past version of you or the curated version of you ever existed. What did you do to earn his love? Nothing. What must you do to keep his love? Nothing. Do you see the grace of God's love? It's a love that's made tangible and real in the life and death of Christ. It is God's love that moved him to send his son that we might be reconciled to him. I want to circle back to one little phrase, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the little phrase, through faith. How does the love of God get down into you? Like, if what we really need is not just to know that God loves us, but for for, it to get down into our inner being in a way that roots us and grounds us and strengthens us. How does the love of God get down in us? The answer is through faith. And faith is simply taking God at his word. There's no power, no magic in faith. Faith is simply counting as true what God says is true. And here's why this matters. Here's why it's crucial that we grab this. Because our modern world has mostly convinced us that love is an emotion. And the way you know that love is real is by how intense it feels. And so many modern Christians crave some emotional experience of God's love. And that's not a bad thing. The language of this passage is existential language. It matters that you have a personal experience of the love of God for you. But verse 17 is telling you that that experience, that personal sense of the love of God for you comes through faith, through taking God at his word. I'm going to use a a cheesy little illustration here that requires you to go back in your mind to the dawn of the city of Omaha, to the heyday of Union Pacific Railroad, to the days of the steam locomotive. In those days, you had the steam engine You had the coal car or the tender, and then you had the rest of the train. And for this train to go, someone had to feed coal into the locomotive to fuel the engine. And if you stopped feeding coal, the train would run out of steam. So it's the engine that's providing the power, it's the engine that's doing the work. The coal had to be fed into the engine so that it could produce steam. I want you to think about this train as a little picture of how faith works. The engine is the fact of God's love. That's what's pulling the train. The truth that God loved us and sent his son. Think of the coal car as faith. It has no power in and of itself. It's meant to be put into something. And when that coal is put into the steam engine, there's power and movement. And when our faith is put into the fact of God's love for us in Christ, there's power and movement. Think of feelings as the caboose. They're part of the train, but they have no power. You are to place your faith in the fact of God's love for you, not in your feeling of God's love for you. Christ dwells in your heart through faith. That's what helps you stay rooted and grounded in God's love. Grabbing hold by faith of the truth of the gospel. Just saying, I'm, I'm counting on this being true. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Christ that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What we need is a deeper sense of the fact of God's love for us, to put our faith not in our feelings or our experiences or our emotions, but in the verified truth that God has loved us and sent his son. That's how the love of God gets down into us in ways that actually change us. And that's why chapter 3 ends the way it does. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is God after? He's after so filling us with a sense of His love that He gets the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. How can finite humans know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Well by him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. How can our broken cups hold the love of God? Because God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. How can we be rooted and grounded in God's love despite our persistent unbelief? Because there's a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And how can the people we love who don't yet know the love of God, how can they be brought into the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, by the power of him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. What do we need? We need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And how are we going to know that? By the power of him who's able to do far beyond anything we could ask or think. This eternal, almighty, omnipotent God loves us and sent his son. And what we need this morning is to be rooted and grounded in his love for us. So let's go to him and ask him for that grace. Would you join me in prayer? Our God, we praise you this morning. We say with the scriptures that you are able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. So we ask that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, so that we, being rooted and grounded in love, might have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would you fill us up with all your fullness? We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.